0: Hi, everyone. This is Andy, host of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Now, you guys know that I never try and sell anything on the show. Uh, I don't even run any ads. Uh, Really, the only thing that I could ask of you is if you could help us spread the word about the show and about the benefits of including alts in a portfolio, whether you're an investor or if you're an advisor helping clients. So if you have a minute, if you can log into Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating and review, it would really mean the world to me. Thanks so much.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more. We cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagans, and today we're talking about alt-investing in a turbulent economy. We have had a very turbulent uh, past couple of years, and what does this all mean for financial advisors and wealth managers who are investing into alts and joining me is Brad Updike, who is an attorney at Mick Law. Brad, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, good to be here. Thanks and for it, having me.
0: It really is very timely because you know, in in uh, in a turbulent economy, due diligence becomes you know it's more important than ever before. Um, so I know we have a lot of ground to cover today, and I know that a lot of our audience of advisors and family offices is already familiar with Mick Law. But for those of us who aren't, could you give us a a brief introduction to your firm and your role Excellent.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, We're a law firm. We're based in Omaha, Nebraska. Our staff consists of uh, nine lawyers, most of whom uh, work out of our Omaha office. And what we do is we provide underwriting and due diligence support to a network of about 300 broker-dealers, investment advisors, and uh, family offices that raise money in non-traded
0: alternative investments, debt and equity. So you all are are a leader in that due diligence area, you know, in in alternatives. Um, And I want to zoom out a little bit, you know, almost philosophically speaking, you know, due diligence, it's such a a key part of the alt industry of the alternative investment ecosystem. Uh, So many RIAs, so many, Wealth managers depend on MCLAW and and firms similar to yours. Um, And maybe that contrasts a little bit with traditional investments, right? With our stocks, our bonds, ETFs, mutual funds. Um, Why is there, in your view, such a core need, so much emphasis on professional due diligence in the alternative space?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah, we start from the premise that we live in two worlds from a uh, securities product perspective, as you just mentioned, you know, we have the public companies. These are very highly capitalized firms whose debt and equity trade on public markets, your Dow Chemicals, your EQT companies. Those both, uh, for example, they trade on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, which has a market capitalization of $22.1 trillion dollars. The second world is the non-traded sector, Uh, the alternative investments, which is where our firm is involved. Alts include like 1031 products that are sold by private placement. That would be like DSTs, real estate, LLCs, and LPs, qualified opportunity funds. Mm -hmm. You got to include in that mix your oil and gas programs and then other products sold by private placements. You also have this registered non-traded product a universe that includes non-traded REITs, BDCs, interval funds. So yeah, you've got two different worlds. Uh, from a volume perspective, I think you alluded to this before, you know, the alt sector, it's a—it's pretty small compared to uh, the public universe, but it's hardly insignificant on that point. Uh, on a, And this is on an annual basis. There are about 20,000 uh, form d filings that are made by various companies annually generally seeking about wow, 1, trillion, 20... one trillion in wow. uh, debt okay. and equity capital so it's a pretty big uh, space that's not to say one trillion dollars gets raised every year but that's what's uh, being sought if you look at these uh these filings so and so brad that, brad oh,
0: question so if there's twenty thousand filings How many of those actually end up making it to market? Do all 20,000 of those make it to market or or only a portion of them?
2: I would say most of the ones that are uh, retail syndicated by your broker dealers and investment advisors, I'd say a lot of those do tend to close Uh, out of the 20,000 filings, about 15 to 20% involve uh, broker dealers and investment advisors, FINRA firms. so, yeah, it's still a pretty significant number. Within the sectors that were most uh, uh, active, uh, DSTs would be one of those. $9.2 billion uh, was raised from 40 different sponsors last year. That's represented growth of about 30% uh, year over year, if you compare that to what was raised in 2021. Another sector that saw quite a bit of growth was oil and gas, believe it or not. Um, $1.1 billion. Uh, was raised by about uh, a dozen companies uh, that we cover, which represents 100% growth from what was raised in uh, 2021. And another thing that people may not realize, uh, qualified opportunity funds, those haven't gone away. I know that the 10 and 15% basis step ups went away, and there's talk in Congress about maybe reinstating that, but there's still some pretty significant tax uh, features of these qualified opportunity funds, you get to defer your capital gains through 2026 and then you get that, uh, fair market value basis step up in, uh, 10 years, if you hold the investment that long. So yeah, notwithstanding the fact that those basis step ups went away, you know, the qualified opportunity fund structure is still pretty compelling.
0: And in your view, you know, if, if you're an RIA, if you're a wealth manager, um, You need professional due diligence, right, in in terms of because very few wealth managers have the ability or really time, I should say, probably more pertinent is the time to diligence, you know, these offerings themselves. That's that's true.
2: Um, On the public side, it's a little bit uh, more maybe uh, BD, advisor friendly. You know, you have the periodic SEC filings that have to be made. Uh, On a quarterly basis, you have an underwriter that's actually in the process, that's an investment banking firm that's going out, they're researching the company, they're conducting interviews, they're assessing the risk, they're valuing the company, and they're placing a, a price on that security, whereas in the private placement side, you don't have that. You don't have uh, periodic filings. You don't have an underwriter. But what you do have is pretty stringent due diligence and suitability requirements, which is where we bring value. And What we're doing is we're going in and we're essentially performing a type of like underwriting function for the broker dealers and advisors to help them determine, you know, whether or not this is an investment that merits their time.
0: Understood. And so that's, you know, I think you did a great job of kind of summing up. The whole universe of investable, you know, alternative investments. You know, most of these offerings. Is there a, is there a particular area where Micklaw? I guess it, all this universe. You know, you mentioned DSTs, opportunity zone funds, energy. Um, are there any of those product types that you all don't do diligence? Or are there? And and I also wondering, are there anywhere you're particularly strong where you're a recognized leader?
2: I guess in terms of like economic sector coverage, there would be probably three areas of primary focus, real estate, energy, and then private debt and equity. Our underwriting services tend to be, I think, more heavily used in the private placement arena. Although, uh, yeah, we do have a couple of attorneys that are also very well versed on the registered non-traded side as well and look at a lot of interval funds, BDCs, and registered products.
0: Okay. Well, so let's talk about advisors and some of these FINRA rules because um, I'm actually not an advisor. A lot of people don't know this uh, about me, I guess, unless they've been listening to the show for a while, but I'm not from the you know asset management industry. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just an LP, so I'm not really in the industry. Oh, sure. and so I'm curious, could you give me some of the background on due diligence requirements for FINRA firms that are selling alternative investments, you know, what are what are the legal requirements? If I'm an advisor, whether a broker dealer or an RIA, and I want to sell alternatives and place client funds on alternatives, uh, what are my legal requirements?
2: Oh, okay. You know, it does. On paper, you know, if you compare the due diligence, maybe obligation of, of a uh, registered investment advisor to a BD, you know, on paper, it looks like there's uh, compelling differences, but not really. Because if you think about it, you know, the broker... The, the RIAs, while they're not subject to the FINRA rules, you know, they do have fiduciary duties to act within their client's best interests. So I would say that a lot of the guidelines and, uh, things that you're supposed to do as a broker dealer, you should be doing as an RIA mm-hmm. on the broker dealer side. Uh, there's a lot of uh, rules and guidance that cover due diligence and, uh, suitability. I think your main rules would include, uh, Rule 2111, which requires a broker dealer to perform enough due diligence and research to make sure that this is an investment that's suitable for at least one type of investor. Uh, Layer on that with uh, regulation BI, which was just passed a couple of years ago, that requires mm-hmm. uh, broker dealers, then remember firms. To actually uh, do a couple different things. They have to understand the conflicts of interest that are involved with respect to these, uh, with respect to all types of securities, public and uh, private. Um, it also requires a thorough understanding of uh, the fees, uh, the risks, and the costs that are involved in these uh, products. They have to understand that, and they also, uh, there's a suggestion that they're supposed to be uh, undertaking a comparative analysis of comparative products in order to put the, uh, you know, the clients in the best opportunities. Uh, so yeah, you've got those three. Um, so
0: Yeah. and And Brad, so that, yeah, you kind of brought up an interesting point there. So with a broker dealer, they're generally going to have the suitability standard, mm-hmm. but to, I guess, ascertain that an investment is suitable for a particular type of client, we have to do due diligence to even meet a suitability standard. And then as you pointed out, any kind of a fiduciary, like a registered investment advisor, they're going to have to act as a fiduciary. And it's almost, I guess, implied that okay. uh, you'd have to do due diligence to place client funds, to be a fiduciary, to act in the client's best interest. So it's really comes with a territory Regardless of of what kind of financial advisor that you are, would you say that's fair to say?
2: Yep. Yeah, I think it's an onerous standard. Um, I mean, with your registered products, you know, you have, I think those are in favor a little bit more with the bigger broker dealers because, yeah, you have the SEC's involvement in the process, there's a comment period. The prospectus gets turned into the SEC, and there's usually a couple rounds of comments just to make sure that the risk disclosures in the eyes of the SEC at least meet, you know, their eye test, their smell test, and then you've also got the NASA uh, guidelines that are followed in the registered right. products, uh, which uh, mandates certain minimum like uh, voter rights as well as uh, transparency and access to uh, financial statements and other operational related information about the product.
0: Understood. So here's a question I have. Um, in in regards to advisors or from an advisor's point of view or a broker dealer's point of view, how much of the due diligence is on an offering versus a, a sponsor or a manager? I mean, you know, realistically speaking, it seems like sometimes advisors or firms will kind of learn to trust a certain brand name so to speak like maybe maybe for instance a sponsor has had dozens of successful dsts over a decade or longer track record or dozens of non-traded REITs or dozens of this or dozens of that they're very well known and they've been they've had conservative underwriting for multiple market cycles let's say do they get i don't want to say a free pass but is there more trust when reviewing that kind of an offering or is is, is it kind of like guilty until proven innocent where you almost have I a, a, I don't want to say a hostile, but, but you kind of just view every offering in a neutral way and, you know, kind of like prove it type of mindset.
2: Yeah. Sponsor level analysis, program level analysis. Both of them are very, very important uh, processes that need to be uh, I guess prioritized and taken seriously, you know, even with the highest capitalized sponsors out there, you know, things turn on a dime. I mean, look at our economy, look how many cycles that, you know, we, we, we've went through and, you know, even highly capitalized experienced sponsors can face times of distress. I mean, we saw that with COVID where certain real estate sectors, you know, clearly outperformed others just uh, due to supply and demand considerations as well as, uh, you know, inflationary uh, considerations. So, yeah, you need to be, like, pr- doing both, and it's okay. two distinct functions. With the sponsor of you, you know, you're going in and you're doing an investigation to determine whether this is a sponsor that's operationally financially capable of managing a program to a successful conclusion on the other side with the product review, it's more about product fairness. Is this offering fair to mm-hmm. the investors given uh, you know the risks and given the quality of the assets and the return potential?
0: So that's interesting. So you're doing the the due diligence on both levels with the product and with the sponsor. When you've diligenced a sponsor, and you've kind of determined okay they have the capability and experience to to operate to manage this offering is is that like a one time kind of a pass fail or is that something that you kind of have to review annually or with each offering you know like because that could change right because you might have one management team in place that you that you diligence and you say this is a strong management team but then management teams are going to change over time. So yeah, how do you, how do you kind of approach that over time? With yeah,
2: varies uh, from sponsor to sponsor, but I would say the shelf life of a sponsor level review. I mean, it's typically about two to four years. Okay. Um, but that said, Even when we're doing like our product reviews, we'll certainly go in and we'll relook at the financial statements. We'll keep looking at the performance, you know, and how that might have differed over the years. And we'll update those sections of our due diligence within the confines of the product review. Uh, Again, the shelf life of a sponsor review is typically two to three years, but maybe, you know, in some cases where there's substantial changes in the sponsor's operations or their fortunes, or prospects for success, they may want to undertake uh, you know more frequent uh, sponsor level due diligence, maybe every 12 or 18 months. It just kind of depends on the company, what they're doing.
0: I appreciate you know, what's yeah, I, happening. I, I appreciate that transparency, Brad. That's that's kind of helpful to know, you know, as an advisor or investor to kind of know how often these things are reviewed. So moving on to some some sectors and I guess the the process. You mentioned, you know, three big sectors that MCLAW covers or diligence, as I should say, energy and real estate, as well as private debt and private equity. I want to talk about how those are different, but first let's talk about how they're the same. How how, you know, how does the due diligence process work, you know, kind of in the abstract, regardless of what sector we're reviewing? Is there like a general framework sure. that you all use?
2: Oh, yeah. Actually, you know, there are subtle differences, you know, when we're looking at a real estate versus an oil and gas deal. But there are some commonalities, some common themes within our process that resonate, you know, across all sectors. Like in each case, we want to look at what the the risk is, re- the risk of execution failure, because uh, that's going to be different from sponsor to sponsor. We're going to look at uh, the reward. We're going to look at the quality of the asset and, you know, what under realistic conservative conditions, you know, what what type of a return, what range of return is uh, possible? Uh, does the offering terms match the risk that's being taken by the investors? We're going to look at uh, the material risks of the offering, whether those are properly disclosed in the PPM or the prospectus. And then. We also want to know whether or not the investors are being fairly treated in terms of their access to financial information and also just their voting rights. Uh, those uh, five things, you know, we do that, whether it's a, uh, you know, regardless whether it's a real estate offering or an oil and gas offering. We also apply what we like to refer to as the alignment of interest test. Uh, this is uh a uh, formula, a test that actually Brian Neck came up with uh, several years ago when he started the firm. It's a pretty simple test, but I think it's applicable to any due diligence engagement. Um, you're asking who's putting money in, who's taking money out. And is the sponsor compensation uh, performance based? Uh, you look at all three of those and that really gives you an idea of whether the, in- the interests of the investors are aligned with the, uh, the sponsor and the issuer.
0: Understood. yeah, that's that's an interesting. I mean, that's an important test. Um, well, some of these things I guess that you were talking through are i guess are a, a legal question, right there they are a question of how the offering is structured, like we mentioned voting rights or investor rights and so on and so forth. But when you mention like is the offering fair to investors or risk reward profile, it seems to me like that also requires a little bit of um financial analysis or investment analysis, you know, not just purely legal analysis. So when you all are diligencing an offering and you're kind of determining, is this, you know, a fair, fair offering for investors, are you, are you using, you know, are you, are you analyzing the offering from like a financial or investment point of view aside from like the pure legal?
2: Oh yeah. Asset quality. That's critically important. We use independent like appraisers and independent reservoir engineers to help uh, determine, you know, the quality of the assets and the return potential of the assets, you know. We do uh, take the sponsor's pro forma as a foundational piece of information. I mean, we we give that some weight, but we certainly don't completely rely upon that. You know, we're going to take a look at that pro forma and we're going to uh, take an independent, uh, you know, look at it. And we're going to come up with our own uh, underwriting, our own pro forma. We're going to take a look at the cost, the revenue. Wait, so Sorry,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. So you all actually make a complete pro forma. You underwrite the whole fund or offering. Completely independently,
2: we do we consider uh the revenues uh the costs okay. the that are likely to be incurred you know during the operational period we'll uh take a look at uh the uh sponsor compensation and the load. you gotta factor that as well because uh there have been a lot of times where the sponsor will give us its pro forma, but it won't be a load adjusted basis it'll it's just be a gross be a a gross,
0: gross forma so. I guess yeah. I should I should ask how how much or maybe what's the range of deviation, typical range from the, the pro forma that a sponsor provides to you and then the pro forma that you independently come up with? Like, what's a typical like do they typically are, you know, they're 90 percent in, you know, like. I, I, maybe there's probably no one size fits all answer. Like There's probably the oddball, you know, the occasional offering that's like way, way, you know, way different. But what what would be typical? What's a typical oh,
2: I mean, in some cases where you've got companies that have been in the business a long time that really understand their areas of operational focus, you know, our deviation will be like 5%, maybe yeah. 10%. There's always some deviation because we don't always agree. With the sponsor on all economic assumptions, but yeah, with your better sponsors with, that are really balanced operationally and that really understand, you know, where they're op- operating, you know, there will be very limited differences. On the other hand, yeah, there are, I mean, we, we've had situations where, yeah, the sponsor thinks that it's got a platform of assets that can deliver a 20% IRR where we think, you know, it's a losing asset that's not going to turn anything. Mm-hmm. um okay. so yeah it can be a lot it can be very different in some cases but yeah in others you know the sponsors just kind of differ in terms of you know how close they are to our uh forms. Uh,
0: understood right i mean and they're all sponsors i guess have a little bit they all have their own differences in their own underwriting and i mean they all kind of claim to be conservative but probably some sponsors are more conservative than others um so that's yeah uh, the
2: big problem you got to watch out for in that regard like where we get, I think, in the cases where we really, really get diametrically different with the sponsor, are those cases where maybe the sponsor's picking, they're cherry picking the best like outcomes,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, within their area of operations. Uh, the better sponsors, on the other hand, they tend to use the average, be more conservative, kind of use the middle of, of the road uh,
0: type assumptions. Understood. Okay, so that that's a great kind of general framework for due diligence but now drilling into these three specific sectors of or, or or i guess four energy real estate private equity private debt how does the due diligence approach differ you know that how much of it is sector dependent right that you you know is en- dependent on doing due diligence in energy or doing due diligence in private equity
2: oh how much of it is sector dependent
0: yeah how how does it change i guess when you're diligencing, you know, an energy offering, I guess. versus Oh, your- sure.
2: Yeah. Well, just it's the type of uh, consultant consulting that, w- that we use is different with respect like oil and gas. We use reservoir engineers and geologists to help us, you know, understand the, uh, the field, the reservoirs in the field, the operating conditions and the probable outcomes in terms of oil and gas production. On the real estate side, we're using appraisers people uh, yeah with uh, certified appraisal credentials or CCIM designations to uh, go in and, and to look at the markets and to uh, you know analyze the real estate assets.
0: Is there, I guess b- big picture, is there like a, a cost or man hour diff- like is it does it take more time on average to diligence an energy offering than an appraise than a real estate offering, for instance? I mean, because you mentioned energy. I'm thinking about all these different experts you got to hire versus real estate. You send an appraiser. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So are they all kind of the same animal or, or some of them are, you know, I think like-
2: real estate uh, asset underwriting is a little quicker uh, than it is like for oil and gas with, with real estate. Um, yeah. I, with respect to our turnaround, like on, on DSTs and 1031 products, uh, yeah, we'll get the information and we can generally turn that type of a project around in five, seven days. Whereas with oil and gas, it's a little bit longer process. Start to finish tends to be like four five weeks. Well, five
0: with. to seven days. I mean, I, well, I guess maybe it's needed because DSTs have been, you know, opening and closing so quickly, but, um, it's
2: tough, but I'm, having a, I'm to- having, a am
0: having a, a vision of like, attorneys uh like on tv shows that are at the office till midnight you know burning the midnight oil
2: uh, yeah we're fortunate in that regard we've got consultants that have worked really in all that have had experience looking at assets in in most uh, major metropolitan cities and the uh, as well as the uh church here important key church markets so yeah they've got considerable uh coverage plus we've got uh, we use a lot of different databases to be able to ferret out the, the, uh, the market fundamentals on a micro scale.
0: Okay. Got it. So it's, it's an efficient process. And obviously you all diligence a lot of offerings. So that, that makes sense. Well, let's shift and talk a little bit about the current landscape. Um, it's obviously it's been a wild ride in the past few years, um, both in the alternatives industry, but just broadly speaking in the global geopolitical landscape. Um what are the major headwinds, you know, that you think are the, the most important ones that are, investors are facing right now, especially that intersect, I suppose, with due diligence and how advisors and investors should should be evaluating these products? Yeah,
2: let's talk about real estate first. A lot to think about here. Uh, stating the obvious, it costs more to conduct business uh, today. Most yeah. notably, borrowing costs have gone way way up. You know, I go back two years ago, a year ago, prime. Rate was three point two five percent, I think, for a couple of years, and then uh, just a couple months ago, yeah, we, we saw pretty significant. Well, we've gradually seen pretty significant spikes. Prime lending rate seven and a half percent today, so that's a four hundred fifty basis point uptick in the cost of uh, capital from a debt perspective. You've got got a couple of that with inflation, which is at six and a half percent now. I think it was seven for most of last year. It becomes very difficult to drive NOI and to uh, pay the distributions. And we're seeing evidence of that, like in a lot of these uh, DST products that we're looking at, you know, looking at Mountain Dell's uh, Q4 22 report, average year one cash on cash returns across all 1031 products was like 3.99%. You know, that's pretty low if you, you know, go back four or five years ago when these products were paying about five, six, six and a half. So yeah, we've seen yields shrink. Maybe not so much in some sectors. I mean, you got senior housing still paying five point six three percent. Hospitality's over a little bit over five. Well, let, let
0: me ask you this, Brad. When when a yield shrinks or you know uh, compresses in a particular sector like that in a product sector, alternative sector, does it change how you diligence in the sense that? you know, you might be an average or even above average product in a sector that is just struggling because of those factors. So do do you kind of, I guess what I'm asking is due diligence a product, like in, kind of with that absolute really zoomed out view, or do, do you kind of look at its peers? Like, so if DSTs are all yielding less, for instance, in a particular time period, does the d- due diligence approach, is it more comparing them to each other or do you kind of compare them against the entire investment landscape.
2: We have to look at it from I think the entire investment landscape. We need to look at the peer group because you know that's important from a bi Reg bi perspective. You know comparative analysis. So yeah, we're going to be looking okay. at you know what the peer group is delivering in terms of yield. But you know we're also going to take a comprehensive underwriting analysis that not only considers whether this is an asset that can cover that marketed yield, but can also uh, return capital. In mm-hmm. seven to eight or nine years, because that's the goal. I mean, the exit plan of these uh, DSTs is to buy, hold for six to maybe eight, nine years, and then return capital or possibly a little bit more than a return. Yeah, yeah,
0: And don't don't get me wrong. I was just using that as a theoretical example. I have nothing against DST. A lot of lot of great DST products. Um, oh, sure. Including ones launching um, this year. So let me ask you this: uh, uh, with all this, you know, work that you do with due diligence. Is it, you know, just I guess on, on, on a personal level, is there any aspect of this work that you find rewarding, you know, fun, so to speak, any aspect of the job that, you know, makes <laughs> I can't wait to due diligence that deal because of X, Y, or Z.
2: I like the site visit uh, work that we do. It's an important pro- uh, part of the process. It's, I think, underappreciated, but very, very important. Mm-hmm. If you want to get really a, a good feel of, you know, what the pulse and heartbeat is speed is of an op, of of a company. You know what, how how the staff morale is, how management's morale is, and whether or not they're all on the same page in terms of mission and goals. You know, the site visit's going to help you ferret that out. I like to do the uh, like interviews with bankers and, and vend- contract vendors too, and suppliers. I think that's important. You can get a lot of information by just picking up the phone and and talking to. Uh, you know, key suppliers, key vendors, and even, you know, bank officers, you know, what the how, how they feel about uh, the sponsor and whether they, you know,
0: yeah, are comfortable yeah,
2: with the relationship.
0: <laughs> how about that, Andy? Does Andy pay his bills on time? You know, is he <laughs> is you'd be he,
2: surprised, though, yeah. you know, you think that, you know, the sponsor they tend to they want they give you references, you know, that they think, you know, are going to talk good about them. You'd be surprised once in a while. Yeah, you'll get you get a vendor or a banker that'll open up a little bit and they'll voice some concerns.
0: Sometimes, you know, Brad, I guess more relevant maybe in your line of field, although I am a podcast host, but you get interesting people talking. You just get people talking. You never know what they're going to say, right? It's almost like a key sure. is to get them talking.
2: Oh, yeah. Very. Yeah, I think the interviews are an important part of the process, underappreciated to get. There's a lot of things that you can pick up in these interviews, especially if you do a lot of them.
0: Yeah, understood. Okay, so returning to you know the standpoint of the financial advisor, whether broker-dealer, fiduciary, RIA, we all learn from mistakes, right? No matter what line of work you're in, whether you're an advisor or sponsor or investor, we all make mistakes. We all learn from mistakes. In terms of due diligence, in terms of evaluating alternative investments, what are the mistakes that you see advisors make?
2: Oh, sure. Um, just and we learned this about twelve years ago when we had a couple blowups: Provident, MedCap. Uh, you know, first and foremost, you can't pay yield on a non-yielding business. You know, the business plan that's being touted, it might you know sound real sexy and and cool, but you really need to take a look at the assets and, you know, whether they can deliver a yield that Mm. can support a a distribution payment or a trend of distribution payments. You know, you're going to want on the oil and gas side, you're going to, this is important there. uh, You're going to want to know whether or not the sponsor is highly dependent on outsourced services, especially like in areas like geology and drilling. I mean, just empirical knowledge shows us that the, uh, the sponsors, the only guest sponsors that are vertically integrated, that are not promoters, that are actually going out, and like supervising their own field operations that are actually doing it, perform much better than the ones that outsource it, the ones that really are just serving a role as a promoter.
1: Mm -hmm. Just
2: a misunderstanding of the sponsor's prior performance that, you know, that's come up from from time to time. You know, having a sponsor with, with good outcomes is great, but is it relevant prior performance? I mean, were those successful outcomes in strategies that are being followed today Mm. In fields that are being uh, like explored today, or within a real estate sector that uh, the sponsor is deploying capital in today, so like having relevant prior performance is, is very important. And then transparency: is there a culture of accountability or unaccountability? Are investors being provided uh, access to audits and even uh, like quarterly? financials i think that's important uh do they get appraisals reserve reports uh, that maybe explain you know the quality of the assets and how those assets you know how much like upside those assets have um and then voting rights you know that's important as well
0: Yeah, all of this i guess to me if i'm sitting in the advisor seat sounds very time intensive but i guess that's I guess that's really the benefit of and what you all do, right, is is being a trusted- that's right.
2: Yeah, the one major difference between us and like a, a public underwriter, we don't put a hard valuation on the company and put a price on the security, but we do a lot of those other things. You know, we're going out, we're doing the background checks, we're looking at the quality of the assets, we're looking at the quality and the relevance of the sponsor's prior performance. We'll also look at the... Uh, balance in all key areas of operations, uh, you know, investor relations, marketing, finance, accounting, field operations, property management, you know, we look at all of those areas and whether there's balance in those areas. Uh, yeah, we, again, we uh, also look at IT resources. We're also going to look at financial statements of so the sponsors pretty hard because we want a sponsor that's going to be around for the long term, somebody that's uh, going to be able to manage these properties, you know, to a successful outcome in 15 to 20 years and to, uh, you know, make a determination on that. Yeah. You really need to dig hard into the liquidity, you know, what their, their current resources are, as well as their net capitalization and ability to stay uh, operational long-term.
0: That makes sense. So then kind of flipping that last question, you know, those are some of the the mistakes that advisors have made historically that other advisors and investors can learn from. Uh, what are are there any common threads, I should say, among RIAs and advisors who are doing a good job with due diligence, who are doing a good job with you know evaluating these kinds of products? Are there any common threads or best practices that you could point to? Sure,
2: um, I, you know, we talked a little bit about the mistakes that are being made. You know the invest the advisors that are doing better of course you know it's just the opposite with them they're performing due diligence and they're doing it on a regular and ongoing basis it's very important to really update that sponsor level due diligence and really kind of have your eyes on what's going on with the sponsor operation and are they you are, know, the, are, are our advisors
0: are, are they are they out you know you mentioned ongoing due diligence i'm just thinking if i'm an RAA. I don't really have time do ongoing due diligence of, uh, you know, of, of a sponsor necessarily. Are they, is it more that they're kind of outsourcing that they're partnering with you? It's just that they're reviewing that information regularly. They're communicating. It yeah, to the they sponsor? certainly
2: use us in the process to supplement their product knowledge. I think first and fo- foremost, oh yeah, this, the advisors that don't get into trouble and that do it right, they, they know the product. And they use our uh, due diligence reports to get to know the product because product education, very, very important. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's also very important to know differences between uh, competing products. Uh, That's another area where our services can be uh, critically important. Also, just knowing the client and treating the client fairly, uh, that's also important. Maybe that's not so much something that we can help with, but just um, it is something that will keep you out of trouble.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's, I guess there's multiple ways to to get into trouble, and one of which is just placing a client into an investment that is not appropriate for them in the first place, right? That's why we have. Oh yeah, uh, that's why we have. Yeah, you'd be surprised.
2: I mean, there's some pretty significant. Yeah, you'd be surprised what can come up from time to time.
0: I'm sure I would. Well, Brad, I, I can't thank you enough for. You know, giving us a little bit of an inside look at at the due diligence process. You know, I know Mick Law has very, very reputable big name uh, in the alternative investment you know sector. You mentioned it's kind of alternative investment is a smaller industry than traditional investments, but I would say the alts industry has grown up. I mean, we're oh we're, yeah, we're pretty big now. You know, especially in the last couple of years. Oh yeah. Um, so, you know, really appreciate all the leadership uh, that, you know, that your company provides in this field and you're coming on and sharing your insights with us today. So that being said, where can our audience of advisors go to learn more about miclaw and the services that you offer?
2: I would say advisors that want to just learn about the alternative investment process and the opportunities. You know, there's a lot of industry conferences out there where you can get uh, very educated on these different like alt strategies. There's a DSA. that's, uh, there's a TNDDA. Um, and then another thing that's been going on another trend among the third party providers is the fact that they all hold their own conferences. I mean, we do two conferences a year. Our uh, May conference has an energy focus, whereas our October conference has a real estate focus. I also know the Buttonwood fact, well, Brad,
0: Brad, did my Either invite get lost well. in the mail, or I, I don't think I got my invite to the May show yet. No, you are
2: invited. Consider yourself invited <laughs> to May. Uh, okay, it'll be in Dallas.
0: Oh, even better. We love Dallas. That's where my partner Jimmy lives. So, um,
2: yeah, what we'll do, we'll invite about fourteen energy companies to come and give twenty-five minute presentations, and then we'll uh, layer in maybe four or five uh, educational panels where we talk about uh, just due diligence best practices and Excellent. maybe uh, giving the advisors and and broker dealers there some guidance on how to better screen and evaluate the products.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll be sure to add to our show notes here, links to your all website, the Micklaw website. And maybe I can also find a link to those upcoming conferences for any RIAs or wealth managers who are interested in attending Just as a reminder, our show notes are always available at altsdb.com slash podcast. Um, Brad, thanks so much for joining the show today and sharing your insights with us.
1: Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com you can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast and we'll be back soon with another episode